My husband and I recently watched a film called The Dig, which is a fictionalized account of an actual archaeological expedition that took place in England back in 1937. The main character is a wealthy widow, Edith Pretty, who hires amateur archaeologist Basil Brown to excavate these three huge mounds of earth on her estate. Over the course of the next year, Brown and his team uncover from these mounds the richest medieval burial ever discovered in Europe. It was a 1,400-year-old grave that consisted of fragments of an 88-foot-long ship within which was a burial chamber that was filled with all of these priceless treasures. So one of the things that I learned from watching this film is that you don't bring a bulldozer to an excavation site. To uncover the treasure from beneath the earth required the use of the proper tools. So not shovels or pickaxes or sledgehammers, tools that you and I might most readily associate with heavy digging, but tools that, to my untrained eye at least, looked a lot more like tiny spoons and, and, and paintbrushes. You see, it turns out that if you don't use the proper tools, then you risk destroying the treasure in the process of finding it. So what does this have to do with Exodus chapters 21, 22, 23, and 24? Well, I think that it serves as a reminder that we need to remember to bring the correct tools with us into our study of the Bible. Our natural inclination is gonna be to come at a text like this one with full force, to hop on our bulldozers and grab our shovels and just hope to quickly push our way through all of the information that we think is outdated or irrelevant and move them away like piles of rocks and mounds of dirt, hoping to maybe find a little bit of treasure somewhere in there. But if we approach our study in that way, then like Brown and his team understood, we risk destroying the treasure in the process of finding it. So let's imagine that those three huge mounds of earth on Edith Pretty's property represents the biblical text that we have before us today. And let us very patiently and persistently get out our spoons and our paintbrushes and dig together to find the treasure underneath. So we are gonna start in 21.2. And this is God speaking to Moses. Actually, we are in 21.1. And God says to Moses, these are the ordinances that you are to set before them. So last time we were together, the week before spring break, we explored the treasure of the Ten Commandments, which was God's guiding moral principles that he gave his people. And when we break these commandments down into their simplest form, we see that these 10 commandments instruct us in two broad areas, how to live for God and how to live with each other. So now as we enter into Exodus chapters 21, 22, and 23, we're going to see the foundational principles of the 10 commandments now applied to the everyday life of the ancient Israelites. So just like you and I, the Israelites may have been able to mentally assent to the moral principles that God had given them, but to be able to spiritually and to physically live out the reality of those principles was something that they were going to spend the rest of their lives learning. 
So what did it look like to uphold the moral standards of the Ten Commandments when the people of Israel were camped at the base of Mount Sinai, or when they were wandering around in the wilderness, or when they at last finally entered into the Promised Land? How did they live for God and with each other in each of those circumstances? How do we do that today? God is a good teacher. Because the majority of our lives are spent navigating these ordinary moments of everyday life, God abundantly provides very practical instruction in this area. So let's see what we can find. Now, I know at first glance, almost all of the laws in these chapters come off as completely irrelevant to us. But I found that with just a little bit of imagination, I could pretty easily translate most of the underlying principles into scenarios that do happen very often in our everyday lives. So for example, um, you might not ever be at risk of your ox going on a goring spree, right? But you do have neighborhood rules and regulations that stipulate that your dog is kept either behind a fence or on a leash. Something else, you may not ever worry at all about your neighbor's pit, fall, your neighbor's donkey falling into a huge pit in your yard. But we do take careful care and concern to assure that our neighbor's child does not accidentally wander into our pool. So we could work our way through so many of the laws in these chapters in that exact same way. But then I also bet that you noticed that there were other instances in which the context and the culture of the ancient Israelites was so altogether different than our context and cultural here that the laws that God gave in those areas caused confusion in your mind regarding the heart of God. And that is where I would like to spend uh, some time this evening. And so immediately, when we begin reading, we come to this in 21.2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for six years. So how quickly we have descended from the astounding moral beauty of the Ten Commandments to laws about slaves. I am guessing that that is not what you were hoping for. And when we run into sections like this in scripture, our natural instinct is always going to be to run for the bulldozer and to quickly plow through those things that we assume are irrelevant, antiquated, or that don't really reflect the nature of the God that we have come to know in the New Testament. But what I want to encourage you to do instead is to get out those spoons and those paintbrushes and trust what you clearly know about the heart and the character of God enough to gently start digging. So let's do that and let's see what we can find here. So back in week one, we talked about the importance of context when it comes to us trying to understand the Bible. And, and context is always going to be important, but it is especially important when we come to segments of scripture like this. And one of the basic rules of Bible interpretation is that the text cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. So we have to understand what it meant to them then before we can hope to understand what it means to us now. So what would these laws have meant to the original recipients of these laws? Well, 
I can begin by assuring you that these laws are not in reference to this type of slavery that you and I most think of when we hear the word slavery. When we hear the word slavery, we think of the abomination of the Atlantic slave trade. We think of the horrors of the legal institution of slavery in the United States. We think of the current ongoing crisis of human trafficking that is worldwide. But we don't have to even wonder how God feels about those types of slavery because just a little bit further down in the text, he outright tells us. In 2116, it tells us that he considers those types of slavery to be kidnapping, the stealing of a human being, a direct violation of the Eighth Commandment, and he demands that those perpetrators be put to death. So God is not talking about those forms of slavery. What God is addressing here can probably better be understood as indentured servitude. And that is what occurred when someone who had no other means by which to provide for themselves would voluntarily enter into an agreement to work in exchange for basic food, room, board, clothing, and provisions. And when the rules that God gave was followed, the worker entered into this type of contract by way of a formal Um, negotiation. So it would be somewhat analogous to the way that a person enlists in the military today. And so by doing it that way, by placing a formal contract around it, God was actually able to put rules and regulations around those contracts that further protected the person who was in that vulnerable position. So you might have noticed this even in the reading of Exodus 21. The first thing that I hope you noticed is that God restrained the amount of time that this type of contract could be seen as valuable. So in Deuteronomy, we get a little bit more detail. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 12, we read, If your fellow Hebrew, a man or woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, you must set him free in the seventh year. When you set him free, do not send him away empty-handed. Give generously to him from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. You are to give him whatever the Lord your God has blessed you with. So when the contract is up, the master is to serve, send the servant out generously. He is to serve him out with more than what he had when he entered in to servitude, and the point was for the servant to exit out of their time of servitude with skills and resources that they did not have before. So this type of service was meant to be beneficial to the servant. It was meant to be so beneficial that when the contract was up, they were able to either provide for themselves in a way that they could not before, or they willfully chose to remain a part of their master's household indefinitely. This brings us to 21.5. But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I do not want to leave as a free man. So there is a spiritual parallel here that I do not want you to miss. When we think about freedom in our modern American worldview, we most often equate it with autonomy. So we gauge our freedom with our ability to do our own thing, to be our own person, to be our own boss, to um, chase after our own desires. 
Now, I'm not exactly sure where that notion of freedom originated, but it, it certainly is not biblical. The Bible tells us that that type of freedom leads to our destruction. So if you remember back to God's originally stated purpose when he set out to free the Israelites from their slavery to Pharaoh, it it was never so that they could simply do their own thing. But God's repeated refrain to Pharaoh again and again and again was let my people go so that they can serve me. And this is a theme that even the apostle Peter picks up on In the New Testament, in in the first letter of Peter, he writes in the second chapter, he's exhorting New Testament followers of Christ, and he tells them to live as free people, dot, 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 as slaves to God. I mean, the language there is absolutely striking. The juxtaposition, live as free people, as slaves to God. I mean, it could be almost confusing unless you're familiar with your Old Testament. And then it makes perfect sense. So back to 21.5, it says, But if the slave declares, I love my master, I do not want to leave as a free man, his master is to bring him to the judges and then bring him to the door or doorpost. His master will pierce his ear with an owl, and he will serve his master for life. So in the case that the servant desired to be bound for his master to life, There was a formal agreement that was enacted in front of a judge that gave him the ability to do so. In Psalm 40, verse 6, we see David describing his relationship to the Lord using exactly these terms. He wrote, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but my ears you have pierced. That's a reference to this ceremony that we see right here of a servant willingly binding himself to his master for life, not out of fear or coercion, but out of love and loyalty and desire. And in the book of Hebrews, it's absolutely fascinating. We see this symbolism carried out even further in reference to Jesus Christ. Only it is not only his ears that are pierced, but his body, and not out of fear or coercion, but out of love and loyalty and desire. I love my master. I do not want to leave as a free man. The next potential stumbling block that I found in these verses is the treatment of women. So as you read, you surely came across 21.7. So let's read that. It says, when a man sells his daughter as a concubine, she is not to leave as the male slaves do. If she is displeasing to her master who chose her for himself, then he must let her be redeemed. So I know that the notion of a father selling his daughter as a concubine sounds absolutely barbaric to us, but I want us to pause for a moment, and I want you to consider the circumstances in which something like this would have occurred. It would have only occurred when a father had no other means to provide for his child. 
So this would have provided him with a way to offer that daughter a way out of their poverty. It was meant to place her under the care and provision of someone who could provide for her in a way that her family of origin could not. Under God's law, servants and concubines were to be regarded as members of the household. So what we see here actually is the Lord taking the poor and the destitute and he is placing them into families. And then he is building out through the law all sorts of safeguards, again, to protect the people who were in this very vulnerable position. So also regarding women, surely you noticed 22:16 as you were reading. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and he sleeps with her, he must certainly pay the bridal price for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must pay an amount in silver equal to the bridal price for virgins. So in case it was not clear to you in just a plain reading of the text, I want you to hear me say that this is a reference to mutually agreed upon sex before marriage. This is in no way an instance of rape. God does directly talk about rape in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 22, and the man found guilty of rape is to be put to death. So that is not what we are discussing here. God gave marriage as a covenant, as a legal, lifelong commitment. And in ancient Israel, as of now, the, the covenant sign of marriage is sex, which represented physically what was happening spiritually when people married. It, it was the coming together of two people into one. So in ancient Israel, all marriages were arranged, which was not meant to be a cruelty. It was actually meant to be a provision. This arrangement process involved the, the long and the drawn out and the formal negotiations between the two families. And it also involved the payment of a bride price, which I guess that probably sounded a little bit strange again to our modern ears, as if women were just pieces of property who could be bought and sold. But it was not viewed that way in ancient Israel. In fact, this was seen as a way that they were honoring the value of a woman. The whole process of the arranged marriage was meant to elevate the covenant of marriage. Um, the fact that the man had to pay a bribe price absolutely, actually provided evidence that he was capable of providing for his wife and providing for the family that they would one day have. So again, the whole process from the arrangement and the negotiations and the bride price was meant to elevate marriage. People instinctively value more the thing that is costly and more difficult to get. So, if the couple failed to go through the whole marriage negotiation process and they had sex anyway, God's law demanded that the man still pay the bride price, which I thought was kind of clever. <laughs> uh, I was really fortunate to grow up 
um, with a great-grandmother in my life. She lived until I was well into my middle school years, and she was a very feisty and a very practical lady, and we all referred to her by her first name. We called her Susie. And Susie was the oldest of 12 siblings, 10 of whom were boys. And I have to assume that this overwhelming male presence contributed to her teaching all of her great-granddaughters the saying, why buy the cow when you would get the milk for free? Now, it absolutely mortified my grandmother that she would speak to us grandkids so plainly, but I think Susie took great delight in mortifying my grandmother, which was her daughter. So as I was reading these chapters, I couldn't help but think that Susie would absolutely love to know that there was no free milk in Israel. (laughs) The law prohibited it. It made sure of it. So this was to be a measure of accountability. The next topic that I often see causing concern among Christians is the severity of punishments given in the Old Testament. And there was certainly plenty of that in this week's reading, so let's address it for a bit. So first, we see the use of the death penalty issued as the punishment for many different infractions in these few chapters of Scripture. How do we understand the death penalty in light of the fact that we just came out of the Ten Commandments, the sixth of which is that we do not murder? Well, I think it's important for us to note is that in the original language, uh, the scripture differentiates, the language differentiates in several different types of killings, some of which are lawful and others which are deemed unlawful. In capital punishment, the scriptures make clear, is a form of killing that the Bible sanctions. It is considered to be lawful. So even in the New Testament, in Romans 13, we see Paul recognizing the right and the power of the government to institute capital punishment in certain circumstances. So we may very well have legitimate concerns regarding the just administration of capital punishment, and that is a very good thing, but we cannot scripturally deny God's institution of it. Something that I want you to see, I want you to hear, is that any time we see the Lord instituting capital punishment in the Bible, it is always him magnifying the value of human life. It is never him diminishing the value of human life. What I also want to draw your attention to is the fact that we see so many instances in the Bible when capital punishment is due for a crime, but God chooses to be merciful. So a really striking example of this is in the book of 2 Samuel when King David, after um, committing adultery and murder, is, is talking to the prophet Nathan, the prophet Nathan, and he says by way of confession, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. We see this also in the New Testament when the Pharisees drag out the woman who had been caught in adultery and throw her at the feet of Jesus. He chooses to be merciful 
So to deny either the justice or the mercy of God is absolutely a failing on our part. He possesses both of those qualities infinitely, and yet he always balances them perfectly. So may we never presume to know better than God. As we continue moving on through the text, we come to another law that is often misunderstood. This one is known as the law of the tooth. In 2123, it says, if there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. So Gandhi famously said, an eye for an eye would leave the whole world blind. And yes, we can absolutely agree with that. Expressions and these laws, eye for an eye, are not meant to be taken literally. They are idioms, and the underlying principle of this law is that the punishment should fit the crime. The goal of these laws was merely to see that justice was done, that a person was not Uh, punished too severely or too leniently. Uh, Our instinct as human beings is when somebody hurts or offend us is not simply to do back to them what they did to us, but to do worse to them than what they did to us. So this law is meant to guard and prevent against that type of vengeance and excessive punishment. This is one of the Old Testament laws that Jesus uh, directly spoke to in the New Testament. And sometimes I, I think that the way he addressed it causes some confusion. So he said in Matthew 5.38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist the evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. So what do we have there? This isn't Jesus overturning the Old Testament law. Rather, it is Jesus separating the responsibility of the government to punish those who do evil from our personal responsibility to forgive our enemies as God in Christ has forgiven us. It's been several years back now, but um, maybe some of you will remember that there was a court case in Kentucky and it gained national attention. Um, It was a young Muslim man who was murdered during a robbery when he was delivering pizza. And uh, during the formal sentencing of the man who who killed that other man, um, the government sentenced him to 31 years in prison. And at that same hearing, we had the father of the boy who was murdered stand up and publicly express his personal forgiveness of the man. And he even went so far as he, when they were leading him out of the courtroom to take him to jail, he went and he embraced him in a hug. I found it as such a striking example of both both of those being rightly applied, right? The the government justly punishing a crime and the individual yet still persevering in forgiveness. So we have an eye for an eye, turn the other cheek. Both are necessary and both are good. 
So those three topics, slavery, the treatment of women, and the severity of punishments, those were the ones that stood out to me as most potentially confusing to our modern ear. Now, there was a lot of material in these chapters, so I am absolutely sure that there were more. But in in lieu of having an entire four-hour session to sit down and go through all of it with you, what I hope going through these topics has encouraged you to do is to simply trust what you know to be true about the heart of God enough to really press into these difficult parts of Scripture. Right? We don't have to know or we don't have to even understand the answer to every question in order to do that. We just have to be willing to pick up our spoons and our paintbrushes and patiently persist. So what struck me as most significant when I kind of stood back and I looked at these three chapters of law um, from a little bit back was the insight that these laws give us into the heart of God. The law always reveals to us the heart of the lawgiver. So the giving of the law reveals the love of God for his people. So we don't often think about it this way, but in giving the Israelites the law, it was a very practical way in which God was providing for their needs. Just like he rained down manna in the wilderness, it was him providing for their needs, right? You remember back just in chapter 18, the people were desperate for rulings and judgments and guidelines. They, they asked for those things and the Lord is giving it to them. This new nation needed to know how they were supposed to live. My husband and I often joke that we could write an entire volume based purely on the absurd laws that we have had to lay down in our house as we have raised three boys. Windex is not for drinking. When you tie your brother to a tree, do not do it too tightly. You may not sniff the dog's butt. You may not lick your brother's butt or vice versa. And the one that will go forever down in Lacey family lore, do not put cheese on your boy parts. <laughs> now, something that I want you to note is that my husband and I did not make up these rules until it became necessary for us to do so. Mother of the year, right? Any law that God gives is a law that we need. And the fact that God gave us the law that he audibly spoke, that he wrote with his very own hand this law, and in such stunning detail, it was recognized as an outpouring of his love for these people. So if the giving of the law reveals the love of God for his people, the content of the law reveals the desire of God for his people. If we had to take this entire law and boil it down to a single word, that word would be justice. Justice is a term that means right 
or as it should be. Justice is an attribute of God, and it is often used interchangeably with the word righteous. So we see in the Psalms in 84.14, it tells us that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. So it means that, that it is impossible for God to be either unjust or unrighteous. So God's great desire for his people is that we would be just as he is just. So God gave us the law to show us how to be right, how to be just, how to be as we should be. When sin entered the world, it distorted everything that was right so that it became wrong. And through the law, God is saying, hey, this is how it should be. So one of the things that we've been emphasizing over the course of this semester is that freedom comes in the following, that as we follow God, he leads his people into freedom. So we have seen that as we follow, God leads us uh, to trust. God leads us to holiness. God leads us to love. And this week, through the law, we see that God leads his people to justice, to rightness, to righteousness. Through the law, God leads his people to the way it should be. Justice requires two things from us. The first thing justice requires is that we recognize truth. In the absence of truth, there is no justice. Think about it this way. If you do not know what is true, how are you supposed to determine what is right? Our culture has been fighting over truth as if it's something to be negotiated, and in so doing, we have bent truth to the extent that it has become unrecognizable. I mean, I want you to just consider, for instance, the current battles that we have waging over, over sexuality and over gender. I mean, the notion of truth loses all of its relevance when everyone gets to decide for themselves what truth is. Justice requires that we recognize truth, and then it also requires that we respond rightly to that truth. That means that to know what is true but not act in light of it is to deny justice. So through the law, God is teaching us what is true and then he is leading us into a correct response to that truth. So how does this play out on a practical level? Uh, well, a couple of things that I saw. Um, one of the truths that absolutely just jumps out of this portion of scripture is the truth that all life is sacred. So how do we respond to that? Well, that means that the unlawful taking of a human life requires restitution. So how do we see that? Well, we see that whether that is the life of a child in the womb, as 21:22 tells us, I mean... Can we get more relevant than that, ladies? You know, it was a biblical topic a long time before it was a political topic. 
and many of you in here know me well, this is not a topic I'm gonna flippantly mouth out on, but it is, we cannot avoid topics that are political when they are also biblical. Does that make sense? Do you understand? We always have to be biblical people first before we are political people. So whether it's the life of a child in the womb or a thief caught in the daytime, as we see in 22.3. Now, what's up with that? The thief caught in the night, it's okay to kill him. The thief caught in the day, it's not. Well, it's a signal to us that, again, all life is sacred. Circumstances matter. You can see things and perceive things, and you have choices in the daytime that you don't have when everything is cloaked in darkness. So if it is in your power to spare the life of even the thief, You are to do so because the truth, all life is sacred. So another truth that which is glaringly obvious from this section of scripture is that human beings are deserving of dignity. So the law teaches us how to respond in light of that truth. We are to care for the widow, the orphan, the poor, the alien, the sojourner, even your enemy. We are to do that in response to the truth that humans are deserving of dignity. And we could work our way through all of these chapters of Scripture just identifying what those major truths are and then how we are to rightly respond to it. And it would not be a wasted night because that is the heart of justice. So it's important to stop and remember here that all of these laws from the Ten Commandments onward, they are not being given in a vacuum, right? They're not just being dropped down on the Israelites out of nowhere. God isn't this divine bossy boss who just decides to pop in every now and then when he wants to lay down some regulations. No, these laws are all being given in the context of a covenant of a series of promises that are being made between God and his people. So after he has so clearly laid out the responsibilities that the people would have in regards to the covenant, then we see God go on and begin to talk about some of the things that he is going to do in regards to that covenant. And that's what we see as we enter into that last part of 23, um, from verse 20 to 33. We see what God promises, and it turns out to be just this built-out version of those very same promises that he made back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. A people, a place, his protection, his provision, his presence. And, And it's killing me that we don't have the time to go through every one of those line by line because it is so just stunningly over the top. Just needless to say that his blessing upon them was going to be abundant. However, the people had a choice. We read, if if you will carefully obey and do everything that I say. Now, wouldn't it be arrogant for the people to assume that they could have the blessings of God if they rejected the rule of God? If they desired God's blessing, they would have to choose 
God's rule. I love my master. I do not want to leave as a free man. What would the Israelites choose? 24-3, Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances. Then all the people responded with a single voice, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. So we see that the people agree twice, not once, but two times, they verbally in this section assent to the terms of the covenant. They hear the requirements of God upon their lives and they hear of the blessings of God that he would pour out on their lives and they reason that the benefits of being the people of God are so clear that they don't even take time to think about it. Right, this isn't something they're having to scratch their heads about here. They say we will do and obey everything that the Lord has commanded. So if you remember back to chapter 20, um, when the people saw um, at the top of Mount Sinai the clouds and they heard the thunder and the lightning and the voice of God and they were absolutely terrified. And so they asked Moses, you, you speak to God on our behalf. I mean, they were so convinced that even the sound of his voice would just absolutely undo them. So Moses became a mediator between God and the Israelites, and we see him acting in that role as mediator in this covenant. So accordingly, he he runs this ceremony that serves to ratify the covenant agreement. And so during the ceremony, a sacrifice is made, um, and then the blood of the sacrifice, half of it is poured onto the altar to signify God's part of the covenant. And then the other part of it is thrown out among the Israelites to signify their part of the covenant. Right? That was an adventure to read that part. It, it was pretty gruesome, right? It, it was one of those portions of scripture that as I was reading it, it just took flight in my imagination. Like I, I could see the way it must have been playing out. But I realized that as I was doing that, I was attributing to the Israelites the way I would act, like right now, if you just started splattering blood on me, I would shrink back and I would probably scream in a really girly way or something. But as I read and I studied, I realized that that is not at all how the Israelites would have acted towards that blood. By this point, blood had already been powerfully connected to the idea of redemption in the history of these people. Think back of of what happened at Passover. What was it that the blood accomplished? It was the thing that saved them from death. So the people of Israel would not have shrunk back and screamed at this blood being poured out upon them. They absolutely would have been clamoring over each other for it. Understanding somehow that this is the thing that is going to save me from death. 
24.9. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abahu, and 70 of Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel. Beneath his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli. Some of the translations say sapphire stone, as clear as the sky itself. God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him, and they ate and drank. So in the ancient world, covenants were generally concluded with a special meal that served as a sign of alliance and agreement. So we have a, a group of representative of the Israelites go up upon the mountain to partake of this covenant mill. And there we see a couple of things unfold that are just absolutely miraculous. The first miracle is that they see the God of Israel. The second miracle is that they, he did not harm them. So let's take a second and talk about the significance of each of these. So First, they saw God. What does that mean? I've already had some of you ask me that. Well, we have two types of sight, don't we? Physical and spiritual. And listen to me, to see God with either of them requires a miracle. So far in the book of Exodus, we've already seen God uh, appearing, uh, physically manifesting himself in several different ways. He manifested himself as the burning bush. We saw the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, and in just a few verses, we're going to see the all-consuming fire at the top of the mountaintop. So we don't exactly know what shape this physical manifestation took, and Moses and the elders who were with him aren't really much at help at all because all they can tell us is about his feet and the ground upon which he stood. Did you catch that? It reminded me of Exodus 3, when God appeared to Moses in the form of the burning bush, and Moses starts to come near to the bush, and God has to tell him, you take off your sandals because this is holy ground. Moses didn't have the physical ability to see that holy ground back in Exodus 3, but he can see it now. And it is so distractingly beautiful that he can't even raise his eyes above it. Women, any conception that we have of God falls woefully inadequate. Even your highest, most glorious thought concerning who he is isn't even getting us above his feet. And that should astound us. So that's the first miracle, they saw him. And then the second miracle is that he did not harm them. Moses notes this because it is unexpected. Sinful man cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. Yet these men who had bound themselves in covenant to the Lord and who had been sprinkled by the blood of a sacrifice, they sit in the presence of God and they eat and they drink and they are not consumed. So that is the second miracle. They saw the God of Israel and he did not harm them. These miracles foreshadow for us several other instances that we read about in the New Testament when God would once again dine with man. 
In these instances, it is God the Son who has miraculously wrapped himself in flesh and bone in order that he could be physically seen. And God the Son dines not only with those who had already bound themselves in covenant to the God of Israel and been sprinkled with the blood of one of the sacrifices, but he dines with every sort of sinner that you could imagine. With thieves and with prostitutes and with those who had up until that point just wholeheartedly rejected the rule of God in their life. And yet, just like we see with the elders at the top of Mount Sinai, they eat and they drink in the presence of God and they are not consumed. How can that be? It's because a better covenant was about to be made. A covenant that would not be written on tablets of stone, but that would be written on the flesh of the human heart. And this covenant would demand a better sacrifice be made, a sacrifice whose blood was so potent that it could afford even the most grievous sinner an audience with God without them being consumed. Ladies, this is the blessing of Christ upon us. Now, wouldn't it be arrogant of us to assume that we could have the blessing of Christ while rejecting his rule? If we desire his blessing, we will have to choose his rule. I love my master. I do not want to leave as a free man. After the covenant mill, the Lord summons Moses, the mediator of the covenant, further up the mountain. Verse 15, when Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from the cloud. The appearance of the Lord's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain, and he remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The covenant has been sealed, and in a further outpouring of his love, he is going to offer the Israelites even more instruction, which we will get to next week. So my prayer for us as we close tonight is that God would continue to help us uncover the treasure of scripture as we forge ahead in the book of Exodus. Over these next few weeks, we will have to trade in our bulldozers and our shovels for our tiny spoons and paintbrushes to get the job done. But if we can do that, if we can patiently and persistently continue sifting through the word of God, we will undoubtedly uncover pearls of wisdom, the gift of truth, the beauty of his covenant, and the priceless jewel of his law. It is an honor and a joy to pursue those things alongside of you ladies. Let's stand and respond in worship.